Welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm Christian Ward, Head of Media and Marketing at Stylus. Today we're talking about counter-consumption and authenticity in brand culture. Here to discuss that with me are Craig White, the Senior Retail Project Director for Property Developers Argent LLP. They're the group behind Coles Drops Yard, the major new retail hospitality destination in King's Cross. Also joining me, Stylus's own Katie Barron, Head of Retail. Before we get into uh, our subject today, I just want you, Craig, to describe Coles Drops Yard for, for anyone who hasn't uh, been there yet. What exactly is it? Coal Drops Yard, as the name says, is these two uh, buildings that were built by the Cubitts Brothers Architects who built King's Cross and lots of other Victorian buildings around London. And these buildings are machines. Uh, they were built, uh, they're the length of locomotives, locomotives laden with coal came into the buildings, 1851 to 1900. And um, they dropped their coal down into the arches, which was distributed around London. And within those buildings are the industrial warehousing, but also the, the, the very uh, much more ornate clerical buildings. And so you've got this collection of buildings, which put together, redesigned by Thomas Heatherwick, joined with the modern architecture intervening with the historic, uh, created 65 retail spaces. So in total size, we have about 100,000 square feet, um, which forms... Uh, the heart of retail at King's Cross, which in total is about a half a million square feet. But really, um, King's Cross is made up of neighbourhoods. And what Coldrops Yard represents for King's Cross and for London um, is a destination for retail. So it's not a high street. It's actually a retail destination. And that was very influential and informative on the brands that we wanted to work with. Do you think you're trying to create a new vision for that space? Or is it a sense of trying to kind of create a new vision that feeds in some of those sort of grittier, you know, the sort of the historic, because it's, le- I mean, it's legendary, isn't it? It's legendary and n- nefarious. And I, I think that n- nefarious uh, recent subculture is really important. And um, it's, it's place. That's what it is. It was a legendary place. And it was, um, but then you keep going back and you keep finding its purpose in the city. And ultimately its purpose is that industrial heartland of London. It's where all the goods came in. And so, all of the people, the generations of families that work and live around there, they're still there and new people coming in all the time. So it's a very transitional area. And then, of course, in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, it became the epicentre of clubbing in London. Yeah. Um, and so all of those things you put in the melting pot to what is King's Cross today. And then you mix it in with, with, with um, you know, what Argent are doing, bringing in uh, new buildings. So architecture, design, and bringing in new institutions we'll, like we'll Central I think it's interesting that you mentioned club culture because I think, um, you know, what club culture and retail have got a history of being really closely interwoven. Um, we, I mean, will there, be, will there be another club at any stage? There, there is going to be another club. There is going to be another club. Yeah. That's really interesting because yeah. for me, I think one of the problems is that, there, you know, there are a lot for lots of industries, but particularly with retail, there's a certain level of sort of sanitisation, including even things that look really beautiful, because it's almost like it's a sort of gun for hire culture. Let's get the best VM people, let's get the best, um, you know, architects, let's get, you know... And it's, of course, you, know, you, want, you want those people in terms of creativity, but actually you kind of want the kind of the wild card mm. aspect, which clubbing culture 
brings to it. Because I was wondering, you know, if there's a club there. Because I mean, if you think about some of the greatest, most exciting retail spaces, yeah. you've got, you know, like the Penial Eye, for instance, yeah. was a store. Um, you know, if anyone's listening to this, and the Penial Eye was was a store that was originally supposed to be a, a Japanese toy store, and the stylist Nicola Formichetti um, and and his mate were basically starting that, and then it became a Hamer shop where you'd have all these stylists would go in, and then they would go to clubs afterwards, and so actually it became a kind of um, it, it was it you know completely organically um, it became this kind of hub for that sort of culture the, the sort of the peripheral side of that culture so I'm I'm really interested to see if it, that's why I was asking about the club really yeah we we I mean we took all of that because as you say re- retail at its best reflects you your life and and I think everyone that um, that that we've spoken to who owned brands they were clubbing. Yeah, pretty much. You know, if you were a British brand and and uh, you know uh, you own that brand, then you were probably clubbing in London in King's Cross. Yeah. So there's an emotional connection already to that area. And, yeah. And then with the reinvention of it, you bring all of that stuff forward. So we we wanted to work with brands that could could bring that spirit of those yeah. of those days back. And of course, those days haven't gone away. They just move. They keep moving to other bits of of the city. Um, and um, so there will be a club opening later this year, hopefully. Okay. Um, it's a big space, obviously. They take time to <coughs> to build. Yeah. Um, but the owner of that club actually comes straight out of the music business. Oh, okay. But I think you're right. You know, you can... You can, can you ha- give us... Can you tell us any more about that? Maybe. Later. <laughs> but when, when projects have... Uh, when they're bought, people can see through that, right? Yeah. You can, yeah. You can see through that. Yeah. If, because if, because collaboration culture is just massive yeah. at the moment, and it, and and to me, a lot of collaboration culture. Occasionally, you'll get a really smart one. Like I actually think Birkenstock did it quite interestingly um, last year, where they would basically go to different spaces and then allow the hosts of the spaces to curate it. So it was very much a kind of intermingling yeah. um, of sensibilities. But largely, when I see collaboration culture, largely what I see is just um, a marketing budget very patently a marketing budget right out in front of me you know who, yeah. who's you, yeah. you can I almost sort of see the machinations uh, uh, right there in front of you and when you're in the space where you see the product but that's a great example of a brand being fluid isn't it and moving around yeah. they, they don't want this thing traditional thing that we call a shop that keeps them in yeah. one place they're actually going to their people and that's what clubs did clubs moved around yeah, and they they filled cracks yeah. in cities. Yes, and they were you know back to this colonization. They were they were finding places that were free, yeah, that were big, and we're talking about people getting together and gathering. Yeah, and that's what colonization is. It's people coming together with a kindred spirit, common interest, and 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 they have a great time in in that place. And suddenly yeah. you've got something magic, and that's what King's Cross was, and that's exactly the spirit that Birkenstock are capturing. Yeah, by moving to interesting spaces or interesting partners and actually taking that product to the customer rather than asking the customer to come to their shop. Yeah. And I suppose it's also about perishable moments to an extent, isn't it? That idea yeah. that actually, you know, because we're looking at doing some work um, this year um, on uh, sort of youth culture because you, I think, you know, people talk about youth culture um, in a way where as if it's kind of not new, barely nuanced now, as if it's yeah. sort of so kind of globally flattened yeah. and so we're really interested in, in so authenticity is a really interesting issue for this so 
you know, we're looking at that idea of, of these sort of perishable moments, moments, you know, spaces that are more like venues. But, I mean, places that you would plug into, places yeah, that, yeah. that you, you know when it's going to happen. So it might be like a monthly night. Again, I mean, I'm kind of tracking back to the sort of club clubland analogy. Um, but then again, you know, I think some of the most exciting fashion designers, I don't want to make this all about fashion, but I think some of the most exciting fashion designers, people like, you know, Matty Boven and... Um, and uh, Charles Jeffrey, you know, note, and I mention them specifically in the context of retail because there is a look that goes with, you know, there's a look, there's a sound, there's an attitude, there's a place, all these things tied together. And it seems to me that for actually for retail, it's about that kind of um, creating the sort of renaissance of that attitudinal vibe. Everyone talks about experiential, but I yeah. think lots of people, it's the attitude yeah. that they're not really addressing perhaps Probably at the moment. I don't know if you'd agree with that. When, yeah, exactly. When you get together, we live in a world where we're we're together alone. You know, we live in this digital world, don't we? Where we're sharing everything, and so that something uh, brilliant, this perishable moment that gives you a reason to come together as a community or join friends and share things. Um, that's where it's at, right? And and the big issue I have in in our industry is we're static. Mm. So we, we build buildings that don't move. Mm. Um, so how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the future of retail? How do we deal with what, what brands need in terms of their spaces? Yeah, Because they probably don't want a 20-year lease uh, yeah. and all that liability. They're, 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 they've got lots of stories to tell. So, Katie, we mentioned counter-consumption in the intro to this podcast. Perhaps you could explain a little bit more about what that means. Yeah, because I think... Um, and predominantly because for a lot of brands have had to, they've had, you know, different parts of the business have had to be responsible for making a certain amount of money. So therefore, despite the fact you might think that we live in a kind of omnichannel world and business, you know, these businesses are sort of holistically, it's, it's one company. Realistically, everyone's got separate targets. Everyone sits in separate territories, um, becomes very siloed. But realistically, you know, we have to look at a space now where... Um, the physical store space doesn't necessarily have to be the financial backbone of a business anymore. In fact, arguably, I mean, you know, Craig's the person, per, perfect person to discuss this with. Should it actually not be the financial backbone? You know, this idea that, that a space in a climate where brands need to be more awoke, as it were, kind of more activist. Uh, we talk about the experiential all the time. Um, you know, last year we did our, our piece of look ahead work, sort of saying what we think. And actually, realistically, I think this is something that's not just for this year, but for the next couple of years. Creating spaces where you specifically kind of um, take your foot off the gas in terms of traditional uh, return on investment to try and create these spaces where you can give yourself a proper platform to build. Because I think, you know, what's something that's happened in culture overall, definitely in retail. Um, is is a kind of um, shrinking of timescales. You know, you get a head designer in, whether it's furniture or particularly in fashion, don't make the sales that season, you're out. Um, you know, you take on a store, Four doesn't make the sales, yeah. you're out. You know, all of a sudden, and of course, that's not very helpful for, for the rest of, of uh, you know, with, if it's a physical space, the people around you. If you're in a particular head role position, it's not very good for the company culture. But this idea that actually if we take our foot off the gas in these other places, allowing people to misbehave, to see what comes of it. Same thing, same as with clubs, actually, to go back to that analogy. That idea that, you know, some of those clubs, the most amazing moments and cultures came out of those clubs because no one could really see what was, people weren't monitoring what was happening to them on a daily basis. It wasn't about hitting targets or 
you know, getting as many selfies out of there so we can try and commodify what's happening in that club. Actually saying how to leave these spaces proper, you know, when we say an incubator, not an incubator where it's, uh, let's do this thing in, in two minutes, let's give this thing a year. And I think, you know, there's, there's some great things in retail culture, this whole idea of, you know, fail uh, fast and then you kind of move on quick. But I think the trouble is that some of that mentality has, has sort of shifted over to become, uh, unfortunately, this we sort of negatively... Um, uh, it sort of transferred itself into a space where it's all actually all about just doing things super fast. And actually, you know, there was a place for fast, but there was a place for keeping things slow um, and sort of watching what what things happen and watching how things incubate. What this comes back to, whether it's fast or slow, with rules, with no rules, with budget, without it, actually really is. What's that shop doing? What's the purpose of it? And... Um, and 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 that that that's really where the the question comes in, isn't it? For, from my point of view, um, yeah. when, and, and it brings together authenticity. It brings together this counter consumption. What is counter consumption? Yeah. And we started thinking about this um, about ten years ago, and it's a really really difficult question because actually that question is about fashion victims. It's this constant drive by global businesses to keep pumping product out there the 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 system that's created you know these these global production systems um just to keep selling products and and i think the counter consumption actually is about slowness is is about getting back to what really matters you know it's not it's not about this kind of peak stuff which is that phrase that's been around for yeah, so I think it's a really interesting backlash. And I think what's something that really interests me is because when you hear about slow, it tends to be all very much in this kind of vein of, of art, sort of the artisanal world and uh, sort of, you know, hipstification. And it feels quite hackneyed and quite cliched. Yeah. So I'm interested in slow in terms of that kind of slightly stealthy, covert, um, in, you know, incubation in a slightly different way. Um, which kind of. A, can you give an example of that, of what you mean <clears throat> specifically? Um, skate culture is really interesting for this because you know skate culture is, is you know it's being co-opted mm. just insanely at the moment, like almost quite obscenely. Yeah. The way I mean, one of the only places I think that's doing it quite well, which we should probably come back to actually, is um, I went to the Selfridges Skate Bowl. I thought it was going to be quite naff when I went to see it. Quite an embarrassing uh, attempt to colonise skate culture um, and all the money attached to it, is that actually when I went in there, um, it was a mid-Monday morning and there were loads of um, sort of mid-40s skater guys in there actually using it. Um, and apparently because it's it's the only indoor skate space um, in the country, so people are really gravitating towards it. But the really interesting thing about this is when I said, so how long is it going to be open for, assuming it would basically until skate culture dies a death and the next thing becomes commodified... Um, apparently they're keeping it open indefinitely, um, but I've heard it's rumoured to be around three years. All this stuff is being done very well by direct-to-consumer brands. All this authenticity, community, cult, branding, they don't need shops. But why, does, why, why do we need retail for? Can I know? just say this direct-to-consumer brand thing really confuses me because it's like a brand like uh, Warby Parker, they're just a brand. They sell to consumers, other brands sell to consumers as well. I know, uh, I know what they're saying actually means, but I just think... I, I feel it's just it's just the same thing to me. And I think this isn't about saying not making money. It's about having pockets of counter-consumption where you're being unleashed and you're being liberated to drive the consumption elsewhere. We're in a space, we're doing a lot of work on kind of new omni schemes. It's about being able to pick up 
what you're doing in a brand space somewhere and then go back to it and buy somewhere else. Every single brand we're talking about ultimately sells something, whether it's fashion or whether it's a spoon or whether it's some kind of service in some way. You know, selling services is just as viable as selling products. It's about saying you need these pockets. <coughs> you need these pockets of experimentation, um, which clearly isn't a new thing, but you need things where actively you don't have the hard sell, you have the space to incubate things. The, the selling doesn't have to happen. I mean, we've been talking predominantly about physical retail today. These are the spaces where you don't necessarily have to have physical, you know, the selling from it. So so th- this, this is about a commercial strategy. It's about making money and it's about growing. But it's about, you know, if you're creating a movement, whatever type of movement, whether it's a political movement, a social movement, you have to establish some kind of foundation, some kind of purpose, as you said, some kind of level of authenticity, or it will just unravel very, very quickly. And I think at the moment there is so much bandwagoning, whether it's uh, bandwagoning to do with a particular type of uh, subculture or whether it's bandwagoning um, to do with, you know, diversity, diversity inclusivity. I mean, that's a whole other conversation you know we're seeing a lot of people now even on social media saying I don't want to be picked up as a brand for being some kind of outlier or or uh, you know outcast I'm not your kind of mascot so therefore it is essential to think in the way that great clubs started not because they wanted to make money because they just wanted to have a great club night that didn't exist somewhere else so my main message to brand brands would be that's what you should be thinking about. What do you do that doesn't really exist? What do you bring to the table that doesn't exist? And then the great experience will will it will follow from that. Sorry, that was a very long answer, but I feel quite passionate about that. Yeah, I think it's kind of what's your purpose? I think my takeaways from this are: ditch your KPIs, ditch your ROI, <laughs> get slow, uh, do everything differently. Basically, would you guys agree with that? Yeah, I think yeah, same thing. Ditch the rules. Ditch the rules. Ditch the rules. And I think uh, also for this year, think about nerd culture a bit more. I think what we're going to see is uh, is looking at some of these spaces getting kind of nerdier and more niche, if anything. You know, we're still seeing a lot of the same brands around. Um, and I think that's what we're going to see in some of these spaces. These more maverick things are going to be kind of weirder stuff, more nerdy stuff, more niche. Um, and hopefully culture clashes as well. That's what I would like to see next. I'd love to see two massive brands doing some kind of adbuster fusion of their own, perhaps. So much more to discuss. I'm sure there will be lots about this on Stylus this year. Um, Thank you so much to my guests, Craig White and Katie Barron, and thank you for listening. Please tune in next time for Future Thinking from Stylus. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. If you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.